All right, you guys can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing our series through 1 Peter today. 1 Peter chapter 3. So, uh, on Thursday, my twins turned one. This was a very, very fun day for us. Yeah. Good pictures, huh? So, uh, so they turned one. This, this last year in my life has been um, exciting, but perhaps a little exhausting. Uh, I have a friend who also has very young twins, and they got to their one-year-old birthday party, and he said, wow, that was the, that was the longest five years of my life. And that, that, is, that is exactly how I feel. It's a blur to me. So much is going on in this last year. But I actually remember really well the, the day that these two were born. It was actually not, not a very fun day for us. We went in for Julie's bi-weekly sonogram appointment, and, and uh, they're doing a sonogram. They're checking out the babies. And, and on the middle of the, the sonogram appointment, right there on the table, Luke's heartbeat starts to do some crazy stuff. It skyrockets. It, it goes way up uh, into the danger zone. The doctor sees that and is, is really concerned about it that. Something is wrong with Luke. And so they actually send us over to the hospital. They check us in. And I got to say, man, I remember just being terrified at that moment. All I know is there's something wrong with my son and I can't do anything about it. And so they check us into the hospital and in standard protocol, they, they take some blood from Julie and they hook her up to the monitors and the machines and they check everything out. And it turns out Luke's okay. Turns out it was just a fluke on the sonogram. We don't know what it was, but Luke is fine. His heart is normal. His rhythm is good. Nothing wrong with Luke. But it turns out there was something wrong with my wife. In the process of taking her blood, they tested it and they found out that actually Julie was very, very ill. Her body was in the process of shutting down. Uh, About 30 minutes later, they had us on the operating table. Babies are out of her and they're sending her to the the emergency room to be cared for. So I look back on the events of that day and I got to say, I'm incredibly thankful to God for the terror of the sonogram room. I'm incredibly thankful that he caught whatever it was, whether the machine was broken or Luke's heart was doing something crazy. I don't know what it was, but I'm so thankful for those moments of fear because they motivated the doctor to send us to the hospital and it ended up saving Julie's life. If he would have sent us home, she would have just gotten more and more tired and then we probably would have lost the pregnancy. So, so grateful that God took something that looked really bad and used it for something really good. That's often how God works in his sovereignty in our lives. He gives us blessings in disguise. Things on the surface that look really, really bad that in reality, in the long run, are actually really, really good. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Peter has for us a blessing in disguise. Something in our lives that looks painful, it looks awful. We're going to talk this morning about something that none of us want to experience. It's not something that's fun. But Peter's going to tell us it's something that looks bad, but actually in God's sovereignty, it is a blessing in disguise. Look with me, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look starting in verse 13. Peter says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, I'm going to hit the pause button for a moment. Peter has some bad news for us this morning. He has some bad news for us this morning. Often, people who do righteousness, those who align themselves with Jesus Christ, end up suffering. Now, in verse 13, Peter lays out, here's how the world should work. Verse 13, when you do good, when you are zealous for good, who is there to harm you? Peter's referring back, chapter 2, verse 14. Look at what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 14. This is how the world should work. Peter says to the emperor, to governors as sent by him, that is the emperor, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. When the world is working as it should, then those in authority praise do-gooders and punish criminals. 
That's how the world is supposed to work. If you do good, you should receive praise. That's how God designed the world to operate. But Peter has bad news for us this morning. That's often not how the world actually works. More often than not, when you are righteous, when you follow Jesus Christ, you do not receive praise from those in authority. You receive pain. You are persecuted. You suffer. That's the reality of life in a fallen world. Often our allegiance to Jesus Christ brings persecution rather than praise. Now that's, that's very true in other parts of the world. Our brothers and sisters in Christ in many nations of the planet are right now, this morning, suffering intense persecution for their faith. I want to tell you about a really helpful website. If you have some time, log on to persecution.com. It's put together by Voice of the Martyrs. They gather news articles from all over the world that talk about what our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering for their faith. So persecution.com. Let me just read you a couple stories that I pulled this week. Here's one from Afghanistan. You may have read about this in the news a couple months ago. Ten members of a Christian medical team working with International Assistance Mission were murdered in northern Afghanistan on August 5th after spending three weeks providing medical care to villagers. Six Americans, a Briton, a German, and two Afghans were ambushed when they stopped to eat lunch in Sharoon Valley in the Hindu Kush Mountains of northern Afghanistan. The Taliban, who have claimed responsibility for the killings, have accused the team of spying and being Christian missionaries. The team, which included doctors, nurses, and technicians, was led by Dr. Tom Little, an optometrist who had worked in Afghanistan for more than 30 years. Talk about a guy who was doing good. Here's a guy who, who, on his own dime, he goes over to Afghanistan for 30 years. Every year he's going over and he's giving free medical care so that he can share the gospel with these people. And what happens? He's murdered for it. Here's another example from Somalia. A 17-year-old girl named Nurta in the Gido region of Somalia was severely beaten by her family recently after they discovered she had converted to Christianity. They have her shackled to a tree during the day and held in a small dark room at night. They read the Quran to her and force her to take psychiatric drugs to try to cure her of her conversion to Christianity. That's like a few weeks old. That's going on right now. The normal experience of believers in this world is persecution. The normal experience of believers living in a fallen, hostile world is to suffer for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, we don't suffer persecution at this level, at this intensity, but we know it too. We have suffered persecution for our faith in one way or another. Now, for some of us, it may have come in the form of ridicule. I have a friend who committed to go on a summer missions project. She wanted to go overseas to share the faith with people who, who haven't heard the gospel. And, and she told her family about it, and she received great amounts of ridicule from her extended family. They said some very hateful things to her. They were angry at her. They accused her of joining a cult for going here to Grace Bible Church, that she would want to go share the gospel with other people. She paid a price for that. Now, persecution may come in the form of losing something you care dearly for. That's, that's what I experienced. After I graduated from college, I went to work at an engineering company. Um, and I got to this engineering company and, and I, I uh, kind of settled into my job and I began to feel convicted by the Lord that I should not work on a normal basis more than 45 hours a week. Now, if there's a big project due, I'll, I'll spend tons of hours. But on a normal basis, 45 hours a week should be my ceiling so that I have time to serve at church and spend time with friends and family. So I thought that was a wise decision. I shared it with my boss to which he said, well... I'm not going to fire you, but you'll never be promoted. You will always be a CAD monkey at this company because you're not willing to put in the hours we expect. 
My obedience to Jesus Christ cost me any hope of ever being promoted, ever making it to management like I had hoped to. Living in a hostile world, a fallen world, followers of Jesus Christ will often experience persecution. We shouldn't be surprised by it. In fact, we should be a little surprised when we're not persecuted. That's the weird reality. Usually throughout church history, those who have aligned themselves with Jesus Christ pay a price for it. They're persecuted living in a hostile world. That's the bad news that Peter has for us. The normal experience of Christians living in a hostile world is persecution. That sounds really bad to us. I'm guessing that on our list of what things we want to experience in life, probably none of us included persecution on that list, did you? That's not really what we want in life. We really don't want to suffer. We don't want to be in pain. That's not what we want. It sounds bad that we are going to suffer for our faith. Persecution sounds like a really horrible thing, but it's not to Peter. Actually, in Peter's eyes, persecution is a really good thing. Look back in verse 14. Let's read the next phrase. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Peter says persecution sounds bad, but it's actually good. It's a blessing in disguise. On the surface, it looks bad, but it's actually really good. When you suffer for your faith, you're blessed. By blessed, Peter doesn't mean happy or delighted. He means favored or privileged by God. His point is when you suffer for your faith, it is actually a sign that God favors you. It is actually privilege from God that you're being persecuted. Now, that's actually a common biblical theme. Jesus himself talks about that in Matthew chapter 5, part of the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Jesus is saying, yeah, persecution for your faith, it looks bad, but it's actually proof that you're blessed. Now, Peter believed that truth and he lived that truth out in his own life. Peter faced a lot of persecution. In Acts chapters four and five, Peter and John are are hauled before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, and they are punished because they are faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's how the events end, Acts chapter five. They took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now to really grasp this, let me define one of the words there, flogged. What is flogging to Jews? Well, in the law, in the Jewish law, flogging refers to a penalty they called 40 lashes minus one. It was basically the worst thing you could do to a criminal short of killing them. You would be flogged or beaten, whipped 39 times across your chest and your back with a three-stranded cord of cowhide. You'd be hit hard enough to open up the flesh so that you bled. A lot of people died from this. They lost so much blood that they just died. So Peter and John are whipped to within an inch of their life. And how do they respond? They don't just accept it. They rejoice in it. They count it as privilege from God. They say, we've been whipped to an inch of our lives and we say we are blessed because of this. This is proof that God favors us, that he blesses us. Peter's saying the irony is when you suffer, it appears to be proof that life is going badly for you, but not for us. If we're suffering because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ, it is actually proof that life is good for us, that we are favored by God, that we are privileged by God. Now, for most of us, That sounds nuts. 
We, we read this account and we think, man, Peter and John, you are made of different stuff than us. Because this is not how I would respond to being whipped within an inch of my life. This sounds crazy. It sounds absurd to say that persecution for our faith is a good thing. That suffering for your faith is a blessing. That sounds crazy to us. Peter knows that sounds crazy. So he actually spends a bunch of the passage proving it to us. What I want us to do, we're going to skip verses 15 through 17. We're going to come back to them next week. All of Nick's sermon is all about verses 15 to 17. We're going to skip those and we're going to move to verse 18 through 22. Verses 18 through 22 are Peter's proof that persecution is actually a blessing. That suffering for your faith is actually showing that you are favored by God. It's actually a blessing in disguise. So look with me starting in verse 18. Peter says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Now, you may notice there's a couple verses in what I just read that are among the most difficult in the entire Bible to interpret. We've got to wrestle with some really tough stuff this morning interpretively. Now, I'm going to walk you through my best understanding of this passage, but in the midst of these difficult verses, please don't miss the big idea. Peter's big idea in this passage is that persecution is actually a good thing, that persecution actually leads to blessing. You suffer now, you will be shown victorious later. Peter proves that by pointing us to three examples. Persecution is a good thing. It's a blessing. First, he proves it by looking at Jesus. In Jesus' life, persecution led to victory. Peter starts with Jesus' persecution, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. Peter reminds us, Jesus was just. In other words, he was sinless. Jesus never did anything but good. So, if the world was operating properly, what should Jesus have received during his life? Nothing but praise. He was the ultimate do-gooder. Everybody should have praised him. What did he get instead? Ridicule, abuse, imprisonment, beating, crucifixion. Jesus received persecution even though he was the most righteous among us. And Peter tells us he did it for us. Jesus is God. He didn't have to take it, but he chose to take it on our behalf so that he could bring us to God. Peter's reminding us that human beings, we're not born as children of God. We're born separated from God because of something the Bible calls sin. We, we do things that we know are wrong. We offend God. We don't obey him. Because of that, we're separated from him. And there's nothing that we can do to fix that separation. We can't earn our way back to God. So God sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life and then take all of our sins upon himself. He took our sins on himself and died in our place, taking the penalty that we deserve. Because of that, we can be brought back to God. We can be forgiven because Jesus died for us. That's the good news of the gospel. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, you can be saved. You can be brought to God. You can be restored to God and have an eternal relationship with him. That's where Peter begins, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. But, but in this passage, Peter's not really focusing on the persecution that Jesus bore. 
He's not really focusing on the sacrifice of Jesus. He's focusing on what came after the suffering. End of verse 18. But made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. We're going to pause there. Peter's point is in the experience of Jesus, suffering and persecution led to victory and vindication. Persecution led to victory for Jesus. Victory in the resurrection, into verse 18. Jesus rose from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it, it looked on Good Friday like Jesus' enemies had won. The kingdom of Satan aligned with, with sinful humanity and sought to destroy Jesus Christ. And on Friday, it looked like they had won. They had killed him. He's in the grave. But on Sunday, he rises from the dead more powerful than ever. Glorious, perfected in a resurrected body. In other words, in his resurrection, he proves that they failed. His resurrection was the moment of his victory. When Jesus rose from the dead, he proclaimed all his enemies, you lose and I win. You tried your best to destroy me, but you failed. I'm back from the dead and I'm more powerful than ever. Okay, so, so that victory occurs in Jesus' resurrection, but then Jesus goes out and he is vindicated. That's where Peter moves next. After the resurrection, after his victory and resurrection, Jesus is vindicated before his enemies. And verse 19, talking about Jesus' vindication, is one of the hardest verses in the Bible to interpret. What in the world is going on in that verse? Who is Jesus proclaiming to? Where is this place? What message is he proclaiming? Really tough verse. Let me, let me give you the three options that are generally given and then where I land. Okay, the first option is that what Peter is talking about is that the spirit of Jesus Christ filled Noah back in Noah's days and proclaimed through Noah to the human beings living that the flood was coming. Well, that's possible, but I, I don't think that's the right interpretation. I don't think that's likely. Second interpretation that's often given, that after his death, but before his resurrection, the spirit of Jesus Christ descended into hell and proclaimed victory over all the human beings who had died during Noah's day. Possible. Again, I don't think that's the most likely. I think it's the third option. I think what Peter is saying is that after his resurrection, but before his ascension into heaven, Jesus Christ proclaimed victory over the demons who had led human beings astray back in Noah's day. And I got to explain this a little bit. This is kind of complicated. Uh, it, it's referring to something Peter talks about in his second epistle, second Peter. He says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Peter's talking about that back in Noah's day, there were fallen angels who sinned and God punished them by confining them to a prison or to hell. He's referring back to the events of Genesis chapter six, verses one and two. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Sons of God in this passage is not referring to human beings, it's referring to fallen angels. Basically back in, in Noah's day, there were demons who saw beautiful woman, women and took them as their wives in order to have half-breed children through them. And God took that very seriously. This was really bad news. What these demons were trying to do was to short-circuit God's plan for humanity. God created human beings to rule over the, all of creation. I don't know if you realize that. You're created to be a king or a queen over all of creation, including angels. You were designed to rule over angels. That's what we'll do one day. But fallen angels don't really like that plan. They'd really not rather be ruled over by you. So what do they do? 
They try to hook up with human women in order to corrupt the human race, in order to lead the human race away from God. God does not like that. He's very upset about that because this is threatening his plan for humanity. So what does he do? He takes these demons who were taking to themselves human wives and he confines them for the rest of human history. These demons who made this choice, they are in prison today. And here's Peter's point. After rising from the dead, Jesus went to wherever this prison is and he proclaimed victory over these demons. He proclaimed to them, you guys did your best to try to destroy the human race by hooking up with these human women. You tried to destroy the human race, but I beat you. I just died for them so that they could be forgiven. I rose from the dead, defeating death. I've beaten you. God's plan will be accomplished because I've won. I think what Jesus is doing here is kind of similar to what happens in football. Some of you be watching football games later this afternoon. And there will probably be moments where a receiver makes a great catch and you will see him get up off the turf and get in the face of the corner that he just, that he just beat and rub it in. Now, when humans do that, that's sin. We call that pride. Uh, we're human beings. We have no business proclaiming our greatness to other people. But when God does it, it's not sin. God is the greatest being in all of the universe. God is infinite. He is perfect. He is holy. When God proclaims his greatness, it's not pride, it's truth. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is showing up in the presence of his enemies and he is proclaiming his greatness. He's getting in the face of these demons who tried their best to destroy the plan of God. He's getting in their face and he's saying once and for all, I win, you lose. I beat you. I won the day, you're defeated. And he doesn't just do it towards them. Look at verse 22. Speaking of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. That reference to angels, authorities, and powers, that's a reference to fallen angels. God has given the earth into the hands of demons. For now, Satan and his kingdom rule this planet. But, but Peter's point is, is very interesting here. I don't know if you guys realize, between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven, 40 days passed, But if you read your New Testament, you'll find out uh, we only know what happened on a few of those days. We only have records of what Jesus was doing on a few days. So what was he doing on all the other days? Well, I think according to Peter, what Jesus was doing on those other days, in his resurrected body, he could appear wherever he wanted. I think he was appearing all over the world in the throne rooms of these demonic rulers, and he was getting in their face and telling them, I win, you lose. Just showing up to tell you, I won, you lost. I'm coming back soon, and I'm going to wipe you out because I won, you lost. That's what he was doing, proclaiming vindication over them. And Peter's whole point in that is to say, yes, Jesus suffered. Yes, he was persecuted, but that persecution led to victory. It led to his vindication because he suffered for righteousness sake. He has won the victory. His enemies are defeated. He has proclaimed victory over them. Jesus is is the primary proof Peter gives us that persecution is actually a blessing in disguise. Persecution leads to victory and vindication. Jesus is the first example Peter points us to. The second is Noah. Look with me at verse 20. These spirits were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, this reference to Noah is not arbitrary. Peter's not going on a rabbit trail here. Actually, Noah is a a really excellent example to all Christians who are suffering persecution. All of God's people who suffer persecution can look at Noah. There's a number of, of parallels between Noah's day and our day. As in Noah's day, so always the wicked outnumber the righteous. That's just a reality. Followers of God are always a minority on this earth. Because of that, we're not usually the ones running this planet. 
Usually it's, it's the wicked who run this planet. That's why we're persecuted, because we're a minority. We don't run things. Unrighteous people do. That's the first parallel. Second parallel. God is patient towards sinners. As in Noah's day, so today. God is patient. He's not bringing judgment upon sinners yet. He is giving them time to repent and to return to him. Third parallel. God delivers the righteous and punishes the wicked. At some point in time, God's patience is exhausted. His patience comes to an end and he shows up in judgment and he wipes out the wicked and he saves the righteous. And how he saves the righteous is through belief. Noah believed that God was going to bring a flood. He believed, so he built an ark. He believed, so he got into the ark. And as a result, he was delivered when judgment came. Belief is what brings deliverance. So there's a lot of parallels between Noah's experience and our experience today. As he faced persecution, so we will too. But I I think the primary reason that that Peter points us to, to the example of Noah is this. At the end of Noah's account, after the flood, where were Noah's enemies? Where were the guys who had ridiculed him, who had persecuted him? Where were they? They were all dead. Every last one of them was dead. Peter's point is, at the end of the day, you may be persecuted now, but in the end, you're going to win and they're going to lose. The flood brought vindication to Noah. Yeah, he's building an ark in the middle of a field and everyone's ridiculing him. They're calling him crazy. But at the end of the day, he was proven right and they were proven dead. That's Peter's point. You suffer now, you'll receive victory later. You're persecuted now. That's proof that at the end of the day, God is going to vindicate you. He's going to prove you right and them wrong. We will share in the victory of Jesus Christ in the future. Noah is also a great example of that. And then the third proof that Peter points us to is actually us. Peter wants us to understand that already in our lives, we are experiencing proof of the fact that persecution leads to blessing. And he points us in particular to our baptism. Look with me starting in verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to need to camp on this first a little bit. This is another really hard one. This is a tough one to interpret. What's going on here? Now clearly he was just talking about flood waters, so he's talking about water baptism. But we Protestants, we hear this verse, baptism saves you and our red flags go up. Wait a minute. I thought I was saved by faith, not by works. What's going on here? Do I have to be baptized to be saved? Well, let's talk about this for a little bit. What we need to realize is that back in Peter's day, faith in the gospel and baptism in water were not thought of as two separate steps. Back in Peter's day, when you believed the gospel, you immediately got baptized in water. There was no separation between those two things. Baptism, the symbol, followed the reality of faith immediately. Let me give you a couple examples. Look at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. In other words, like 15 seconds after believing the gospel, the guy gets dunked. That's the normal pattern in the New Testament. You believe you're immediately baptized. Another example, Peter himself, Acts chapter 10. He goes and visits a, a Gentile named Cornelius in his household and he's telling him about Jesus. So Peter says, of him, that is Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. 
Now, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And then Peter said, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? In other words, look at the events of this. Peter is, is talking about Jesus. He gets to the heart of the gospel. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. His audience believes the message and they're saved. We know that from the next verse. When the Holy Spirit falls upon you in scripture, that's saying you're regenerate. You, you have been saved at that moment. So technically speaking, they are saved before they're baptized in water. But notice what Peter does next. As soon as they believed, he said, who can refuse the water? Bring it on. They baptized him right then. Like five minutes after belief, they got baptized. In other words, throughout the New Testament, faith and baptism are hand in hand. You believe in the gospel, so you are immediately baptized. We've got to realize back in Peter's day, there was no controversy over baptism. That controversy is only a few hundred years old. A few hundred years, last years of, of church history is when we've been struggling with the idea of baptism. Back in Peter's day, it wasn't a controversy. It was just what everyone did as soon as they believed. So it would have never crossed Peter's mind to ask the question, can I believe in the gospel but not be baptized? Peter would have never asked that. He said, what? What are you talking about? You believe? And so we dunk you. That's what everybody does. There's not a single example of a believer in the New Testament choosing not to be baptized after his belief. There's actually only one example of a believer who's not baptized. It's the thief on the cross. He has a good excuse. Everybody else immediately after belief gets baptized. It wasn't a controversy. It's just what you do immediately afterwards. Let me illustrate it with a modern example. Let's say that you're at a wedding and you're, you're watching this wedding ceremony, and the bride and the groom, they, they say their vows to one another, and now it's time to exchange rings, but the groom says, hold on, stop. We'll, we'll, I, I don't know that I'm, I'm ready for this. Uh, I, I'd like a couple years to think about this whole wedding thing before I give her a ring. So can we stop on the whole ring thing? What, what would you think if you saw that? Groom's willing to say his vows, but not give her a ring? You'd probably think, whoa, that's weird. This guy's a jerk. What's going on? We assume that vows and rings are so connected. The vow is the reality. It's what marries you. The ring is the symbol. It's what shows that you're married. We assume that they go hand in hand. It would shock us if you did one and not the other. We expect that you say your vows and you back it up with a ring. Now, now this idea of a wedding ring actually really fits Peter's idea of baptism. In his mind, it fits perfectly to, with, this, with, with, with a wedding ring. Is my wedding ring what marries me to Julie? Well, no, if I lose this ring, I don't lose my marriage to Julie. And yet if you come up and ask me, Blake, are you married? All I have to do is hold up my hand. I don't have to say yes. You see the ring, you see the symbol, you know what it represents. You know I'm married. In fact, you don't even have to come ask me if I'm married. You just see the ring on my hand and you know that guy's married. The symbol and the reality fit so closely together. That's what's going on in Peter's mind. We would never think to say our vows and not get a ring. Same in Peter's day. You would never think to believe the gospel and not be baptized. In fact, the reality of faith in the gospel was so connected to the symbol of baptism that you could refer to the reality, faith, by pointing to the symbol, baptism. And that's what Peter does. He can point to baptism just like I point to my ring. Baptism is not actually what saves you, but it's so connected to the reality of faith, you can refer to both by just pointing to the symbol. So back in Peter's day, there was no controversy over baptism. Everybody got baptized immediately after belief. And that brings us to a bit of an application. If you are a believer, if you've placed your faith in the gospel, but you have not been baptized as a believer, it's time to fix that. 
Now, technically speaking, you are saved. Yes, you're saved, but you're in this really weird place that the New Testament never knows about. New Testament says nothing about a believer who's not baptized. You're in this weird place and God doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to demonstrate the reality of your faith through baptism. It's time to be baptized. Now, maybe you say, well, I was baptized as an infant. Do I need to be baptized again now that I'm a believer? Here's how I'd answer that question. Now, our church does not practice water baptism of infants because that's not how we understand the scriptures. We don't think scripture is telling us to baptize our infants. However, when your parents baptized you as a baby, they were doing a really good thing. To the best of their understanding of scripture, they were exercising faith in God and love for you by getting you baptized. It was a beautiful thing what they did. But it was a demonstration of their faith not your faith. It was their faith in God that motivated them to baptize you, not your faith in God. So now it's time to be baptized again, not to invalidate your baby baptism, but to say, I now exercise faith in God by being baptized as a believer. So yes, if you were baptized as a baby and now you're a believer, you should be baptized again. But I hope this won't be a a controversial or contentious thing in your family. If your parents struggle with this, what I would say to them is, Uh, Mom and dad, I so appreciate what you did for me when I was a baby. I so appreciate that you baptized me. I know you did that out of faith in God and love for me. In fact, you baptizing me was a sign of your faith in God. But now I want to demonstrate my faith in God by being baptized again. Not to cancel out what you did, but to complete it. You baptized me as a baby in hope that I would become a believer. Now let me get baptized to prove that God has fulfilled your hope. Get to be baptized twice. Not a bad thing. It's a pretty cool thing. So if you were baptized as a baby, yes, get baptized again now that you're a believer. If you've not been baptized yet, but you have accepted the gospel, I'd encourage you to call the church office or email us. We would love to set that up for you. The New Testament knows nothing of believers who haven't been baptized. God wants you to be baptized. It's just like a wedding ring. You'd think it's really weird if a groom wouldn't wear the ring. So get baptized. So when Peter says baptism saves you, is that true? Well, yes, in Peter's mind, that is true. With how Peter is talking about salvation, it is true because in his mind, the reality of faith in the gospel is so connected to the symbol of baptism that you can refer to the reality by pointing to the symbol. So yes, baptism saves you. But here's why Peter looks at baptism because you might wonder, okay, Peter, why create all of these hundreds of years of theological controversy by referring to baptism? Why didn't you just say faith rather than the symbol of baptism? Well, here's why. Because baptism is particularly relevant for these believers who are facing persecution. Their community of of hostile people living around them, they couldn't see these believers' faith, but they could see their baptism. Back back in this day, you, you got baptized in front of everybody. Anybody could see it. And that baptism, that choice to align yourself with Jesus Christ, that's what brought persecution. They see you get baptized, now they attack you. And so I think for a lot of Peter's audience, they're beginning to regret their baptism because that baptism has become a source of pain and persecution and suffering for them. They're regretting it, but Peter wants them to understand, no, your baptism isn't a bad thing. It's actually proof of a really good thing. The fact that you have been baptized is proof that just as right now you share the sufferings of Jesus Christ, so in the future you will share his victory. That's why it ends with verse 22. Yeah, you you suffer with Jesus now. That is incontrovertible proof that in the future you will share in his victory and vindication over the world. It's painful now, but it's proof that in the future you are going to experience incredible blessing from God. Persecution is not a bad thing. When you suffer for your faith, it is an incredibly good thing. 
It's proof that God favors you. It's proof that God is blessing you. It's proof that in the future you will share in the victory and vindication of Jesus Christ. That's Peter's point. Now, let's, let's bring this to an end. Like I said, we're going to come back to verses 15 through 17 next week. I want us to really look at them in, in great detail. But where I want to end is with the end of verse 14. Peter says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And here's the result. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. With all that we just studied, when we face persecution for our faith, we shouldn't respond in fear. We shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't be shocked by it. And we shouldn't be afraid of people who persecute us. Why? Because we're going to win and they're going to lose. That's Peter's point. May look bad now, but it's going to be good in the future. No matter what people do to you, you're going to win. They're going to lose because Jesus won. You share in his victory. So don't be afraid when people persecute you. Talked a few weeks ago about government. And I got more responses uh, to that sermon than I've gotten to any sermon I've ever preached before. It made me think a little bit about politics. And what I realized, I think for so many believers today, we see the direction that our country is headed. We see that immorality seems to be on the rise, that, that persecution towards Christians seems to be on the rise. We see that bad trend in our country today and we respond in fear. We feel fear over that. What's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen to my kids? What Peter wants us to realize is we have no reason to be afraid. If our country is headed off a cliff, it's okay because we're going to win. In the end of the day, Jesus won, so we're going to win. There's no reason to fear that things are going downhill. There's no reason to fear that persecution is coming. That's not unusual. That shouldn't shock us. In fact, we should be more afraid of not being persecuted. If the world says nice things about us, that's usually a sign that things aren't good for us. We should expect persecution. And when we're persecuted for our faith, it's a sign that God loves us and has favored us and will bless us. Persecution for your faith is actually a blessing in disguise. So let's pray for God's help to see it that way. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that Jesus Christ suffered and died on our behalf. Lord, we, we thank you so much that he has provided the way of salvation we thank you so much that death could not hold him down, that he rose from the dead and he gave victory over all of his enemies, not just for him, but for all of us. Thank you that you include us in the victory of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for all of us as we face suffering, as we face persecution because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that we would not be afraid. I pray that your spirit would fill us, that you would give us confidence, that you would give us boldness. I pray that we would trust that in the end, all things will be right, that the persecution that we face is actually a sign of blessing. It's a sign of your favor. I pray that we would see it that way. I pray, Father, that we would live lives that bring persecution. We would live lives that are faithful, that are true, that are righteous, that are good. Lord, even in the face of suffering and persecution, that we would be faithful to you as we follow the example of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray all this in, in his name. We pray it all for your glory. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. We'll come back to this passage next week.